Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring the films of Dario Argento, as recommended by James McCormick of That's Not Current, and in this week's episode, I'll be talking about uh, Dario Argento's 1971 film, The Cat O' Nine Tales. Um, first and foremost, I want to preface... Preface, preface slash warn uh, you listeners, this episode might be a little dry. As I was taking notes on this episode, I sort of realized that I was started to skew towards historical, social context um, of the film and the giallo genre versus actually talking about specifics of the film itself, sort of leaning a bit harder into the whole film school approach of uh, this podcast, so I'm going to apologize ahead of time if you find this kind of boring or you really wanted a deep dive into the Cat O' Nine Tales itself, um, but I, it, it turned out that that was sort of uh, the case, not just in what, what I found interesting in the research and notes that I was taking, but also, to be frank... The Cat of Nine Tales is, is nothing super special, which is not to say I don't like it, though, um, and we'll, we'll talk about why right now, because that's what this episode is, of course, about. Um, I will give the film credit and say this uh, movie was not at all what I was expecting it to be, um, and I think that really comes down to this uh, idea that I've talked about a lot on this show of engaging with art on its own terms, which is something that turns out to be, as this podcast has gone along, one of those uh, do-what-I-say-not-what-I-do kind of things because it's something uh, that I am constantly guilty of all the time, um, <laughs> as we all are. We have our, um, you know, in inherent biases. Um, bias? Biases? Is there a, a plural? Is the plural of bias biases? It doesn't really matter. But we all have those things inside of us which sort of lean us towards one thing or another or, or sort of... Uh, make us sort of expect one thing or another. And for me, that turned out to be, uh, well, when your only exposure to a filmmaker is a film like, let's say, Suspiria, you're going to expect that his catalog falls more in line with Suspiria in terms of visuals, themes, and general tone. And I think it was actually quite um, smart and made a lot of sense that James didn't recommend Suspiria, um, but instead started with something like The Cat of Nine Tales, um, because Suspiria is sort of, um, it, it seems like more of an anomaly uh, in regards to Argento's career. And, and I'm sort of basing this off of just this one film so far, which is The Cat of Nine Tales. Um, but it seems like Suspiria is really sort of more the outlier. Um, and The Cat of Nine Tales is much more in line with uh, what I should expect, not just from Dario Argento, but from a giallo filmmaker and the giallo uh, genre in general. Um, and it's funny because I'm friends with James on Facebook and he posted something about coming on the show and, and talking about Dario Argento and, and was 
sort of asking his friends to guess which three titles he was going to recommend. And some were joking, but some were serious. And really, none of them guessed the three films that he ended up recommending. Um, and that is interesting, not just to me, but also in light of an email that I received today from a listener, David Lichty. Uh, David is one of three or four listeners that I actually have on this podcast. Um, but he emailed me, and, and to be clear to you listeners and to David, I really appreciate the email. I really always appreciate feedback, whether it's negative or positive, and it's pretty much always positive. Um, but uh, side note, if you do want to reach me, once again, super easy, you do movies badly at gmail.com. But David reached out to me, and, and he made a few points, um, and w- one of which is, is interesting, and I kind of want to address it because it, it ties into this episode and sort of what I'm talking about in regards to context and engaging art on its own terms. Um, but he says, I feel like some of your hosts have taken the combative route to introductions, hitting you with the hardest to like stuff, a deep dive being the intention, I think. Um, if they offered you David Lynch, they designed Inland Empire, Rabbits, and his collection of early shorts. Side note here, if someone were to assign me David Lynch's early shorts, I've seen them, and man, those are rough. Um, it's a valid way to hit any grouping, but for introductions, quintessential and dense may not be as helpful as introductory, welcoming, engaging. Such an approach would give you instead for Lynch, Blue Velvet, The Elephant Man, and then Mulholland Drive or The Straight Story, for instance. One approach wants you to be assaulted by the artfulness, the other wants you to fall in love with the movies first. I, of course, think that this mo- uh, this point is entirely directed towards David Bax, because he has a tendency to, <laughs> let's say, challenge me on his recommendations. Um, David, if you're listening, I will never forgive you for Kim ki uh, and if the NHL season wrapped up today, our bet would be settled by me being the winner. But um, he raised an interesting point in the sense of how do people approach these recommendations? What do they think is going to be the most typifying of a filmmaker or of a genre? And it's really kind of interesting because it, it is that sort of that thing of, um, and I know I talked with Sean uh, last month about Guillermo del Toro. We talked off mic about this idea of, what to recommend and why to recommend it. Um, you know, it was sort of curious, uh, you know, even to me to kind of hear that he wasn't going to recommend Pan's Labyrinth to me. Um, and, or that he, well, Mimic would have been a bad thing. But I guess it, there's always going to be one of these omissions, of course. You know, Pan's Labyrinth for Guillermo del Toro. Um, I, I immediately suspected that James was going to recommend Suspiria and then didn't. Um, but then, you know, why does he go with... Um, phenomenon, you might say, or, or something like that. And it is really interesting because it comes down to the subjectivity of what best typifies a filmmaker's style um, or what best typifies a genre and, and the genre archetypes, if you will. Um, and I think having now watched the Cat of Nine Tales, even though I don't know anything else about Argento's uh, resume or his output, I think it was a really good decision for James to recommend the Cat of Nine Tales as the first one. And to be clear, I'm not bringing this up to to say that David is specifically pointing to James or Sean, um, and and is is he's pr- not that he's being critical of their recommendations. But there is something that in, that's interesting in, in in regards to this question of why does a, a guest choose a certain film. Um, and that is, of course, something that only the guests could specifically answer. And they, they try and maybe they fall short, in your opinion, of, of answering that question when they do the guest introductory episode. Um, but I'm glad that he picked the Cat of Nine Tales because, in my opinion, in order to 
understand Dario Argento, you first have to understand the giallo genre. <laughs> giallo genre. It's fun saying that. Um, and despite, I don't want to say despite, but um, James, gave his, James gave his best efforts to sort of explain what giallo was and sort of what makes it up. Um, but I, I did a little bit more research, a little bit more deeper of a dive into it just because I had some downtime at work today, don't tell my bosses, but then also because I wanted to understand it more fully in general, because I'm one of those cinema nerds, you know, I'm the kind of person that loves to look at the background of things, the social, economic, no, nah, not economic, maybe, but like the social, cultural, political background of a country, of a time period that, anything that sort of influences what I'm watching, you know, there are these huge waves that, that come across, you know, time and history which of course are going to affect the people who are in the surf um and so i i wanted to do a little bit more digging into what uh what really makes up uh, giallo because i wanted to understand dario argento more because as i was sitting through maybe the first half of the cat of nine tales i'm really kind of like okay what is exemplary about this why is this film amazing or um why is this film exemplary or Wonderful, you know, if this was in the Criterion Collection, why would it be worthy of inclusion? And my conclusion really came down to, eh, it's not a great film. But it doesn't have to be a great film to be one that is important or exemplary of a filmmaker or that filmmaker's style. Um, but let me get back to this idea of to understand Argento, you have to understand Giallo. Um, and what it, what I think it basically came down to is that Giallo is, by and large, a superficial genre. And that's not to say immature, uh, though there are those critiques of it as well. James got into, into that a little bit in the sense of a lot of <clears throat> uh, Giallo films, even something like Suspiria, are criticized for being kind of surface level. There's not a, a lot of greatness to the story or not a lot of depth to the story or the script or how some of them might even be misogynistic, um, how women's deaths are treated a little bit more brutally than the deaths of men. Um, Jalo really is something which is kind of interested in engaging your 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 visceral senses, you know, on a superficial level, you know, we've talked about this, the, the lush visuals, the, the kind of eerie tonal soundtrack, which a lot of times is sort of electronic, but then also really sort of setting the tone for what you're watching. I mean, uh, with this one, I, I believe for the Cat of Nine Tales, uh, no, the Cat of Nine Tales was uh, Ennio Morricone, uh, but in a lot of Giallo films, it's uh, the soundtrack is done by the band The Goblins. Um, if you are not really familiar with their work, but you've seen, uh, or you think you're not familiar with their work, but you've seen George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. The Goblins did the soundtrack for that film. Um, so that kind of gives you a, a, an idea of what you're looking for. Um, and, and so and it really is, you know, I'm going over a lot of the same stuff we talked about, but it is interested in those superficial, visceral things. A lot of times it's the the... Deaths are very gory, uh, very exceptional, and, and a lot of times they're extra because of these lush visuals, because of how the, the blood just seems to be a little bit more red and, and gush a little bit more, and, the, and there's a little bit more joy taken in sort of um, the brutality of people. But then also, of course, you have the, the plot elements. You have a, a mysterious killer who is stalking someone, and often not their reveal is often not 
done until the end. And, and there's, a, there's a, a stalking element. There's these ideas of voyeurism and paranoia and sometimes a lot of weird, surreal kind of close-up shots of eyes and objects and stuff, which doesn't necessarily add anything deep uh, deeper in regards to, you know, the people like me who kind of want to think like, oh, every shot means something and everything has to mean something and hint back towards something larger. Sometimes it's not something larger with Jalo. Sometimes it just is what it is. Um, and I kept looking for something a little bit more below the surface with the Cat of Nine Tails when there really isn't. And, and, and I'm not saying that in necessarily a critical way, but just in, a, um, in an observational, it just sort of is what it is sort of way. Um, and, um, it, and this is sort of, of typified, or not typified, but, um, you know, you can, you can one, one quote that really kind of helped me understand it was, there's, there's this uh, writer named, um, I'm going to mispronounce her last name, I'm sure, Alexia Kanas, K-A-N-N-A-S, um, who wrote uh, specifically of, a, of a, a film from 1968, Death Laid an Egg. <laughs> Come on now. Uh, Death Laid an Egg. Uh, she says... While the film has garnered a reputation for its supreme narrative difficulty, just as many art films have, its aesthetic brilliance is irrefutable. Um, and I'm guessing she's being quoted because that comes from a book by, uh, written by a guy named uh, Mikhail J. Coven, uh, and the book is called La Dolce Morte, uh, Vernacular Cinema, and the Italian Giallo Film. And put a pin in that because I'm going to get back to that a, a little bit later. So it is kind of reinforcing this idea that a lot of times... There's nothing deeper, it just is right there. A Jalo film is going to try and engage you with its visuals, with its um, mystery unfolding plot, with its brutal murders and that sort of a thing. And it's, it's not necessarily going to be the French New Wave or New German cinema or anything or, or, or any kind of significant international cinematic movement which was trying to speak something larger to its culture and how it developed. Once again, put a pin in that because I'm going to get back to it. But then that leads me to The Cat of Nine Tales, um, which in this context is quite an exceptional giallo film, actually. Once I started doing more research and taking more notes and kind of really digging into what makes a giallo film a good giallo film... Um, by the way, if anybody's playing a drinking game uh, in which you take a shot every time I play or, or say the word giallo... You will be dead by the end of this episode. I just want you to be aware of that, because I'm going to say it a lot. Anyway, but The Cat of Nine Tales is really an exceptional giallo film, which I think is actually quite entertaining, um, considering the fact that uh, Dario Argento has said it's probably his least favorite film. Um, in, in that there is... Once again, I want to pull some notes, um, and I think he said that because... Uh, after Bird with a Crystal Plumage did so well, specifically in the United States, he he says that um, he you know uh, the Cat of Nine Tales was uh, was quote too Americanized, um, and and I'm going to reference an uh, an article here from Birth Movies Death. Um, it's from uh, Collins Crypt. It's called Collins Crypt in Defense of of Cat of Nine Tales. I will link to this article on the Facebook page if you want to read more in depth about it, but. Um, this one kind of gets into what makes the Cat and Nine Tails work um, in both the context, and I guess it works twofold, in the context of Argento's specific output, but then also as a giallo film itself. Take a shot. Uh, Plumage, Four Flies, Deep Red, and Tenebri. I don't know if I'm pronouncing Tenebri right. 
Um, I looked it up online today. It still feels weird, but... Uh, Plumage, Four Flies, Deep Red, and Tenebrae all involve a guy, either a writer or a musician, getting mixed up with a murder plot, falling under suspicion themselves by the police, but there's none of that here. The police presence is somewhat muted here compared to the others, and never antagonistic. In fact, one of the cops enlists Carlo to help write a story that will help them locate a man who had gone into hiding. The civilian teams up with police plot is always a fun one to me, but there's usually a point where I wonder why the cops keep allowing this non-officer to hang out at crime scenes and such. Here, everyone kind of has their own part to play without interfering much with anyone else's role, which kind of helps flesh out the murder mystery in a way. People aren't usually this cooperative unless they're actually the bad guy. And that's in the context of, like I said, why this is an exemplary film, and, and specifically in the context of the Animal Trilogy, the, you know, the unofficial Animal Trilogy that, that Argento did with um, Bird with the Crystal Plumage, this one, and uh, Four Flies and a Grave, or what, I forget what the title of it is. Um, but it's this idea that um, this one actually works quite well because of how it plays a little bit with the stuff that had come before and would come after, and then also what what sort of made a, a, a good or typical giallo film in that time frame. Um, and, and once again, Ninetales is quite successful. Um, it actually is, in, in my opinion, quite a tense thriller. Don't get me wrong, it wasn't on the edge of my seat the entire time, but the, the script in the film does a good job of giving you a hint that it is going to be, that the killer is going to be this person, and then gradually sort of eliminating that character. And then it just keeps giving us something to think about, to, 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 to marinate on a little bit. Um, and it does a, a really a, a wonderful job in how it treats women. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying I don't think that The Cat of Nine Tales is necessarily progressive. At best, it's just not regressive in its attitude towards women, um, Anna does get some agency, um, but the, this, the, but the Cat of Nine Tales is also filled with instances of the male gaze, not just in the sense of there's a, um, a sex scene, which seems, I don't want to say it's not necessary, but we certainly see a lot more flesh of Anna than we do of our, uh, reporter protagonist, whose name is escaping me. I called it up here, so I should probably look at it. No, I didn't call it up here, so never mind. We're just going to call him our reporter protagonist, but we see a lot more skin of her. Um, there is a, a little bit of humor that comes of the male gaze from that scene at the train station in which we have um, one of our first murders take place, um, in which the only reason that there are photographers there who end up capturing the death is really just because they're there for a starlet, and the photograph capturing the death of this man is almost kind of secondary, an afterthought, an accident, if you will, and none of them really actually seem too shook up about it. It's like, oh, someone died. Oh, here's the starlet. And they all rush over to the to the train car where she's getting off, and she's standing there, and she's like, you know, and she very much has the attitude of like, here I am, boys, take my picture. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, in my mind, there's a lot of scenes or, or early shots in which when Anna specifically enters the frame, there's a shot of all the men turning their heads and looking at her. Um, so she is objectified to a certain extent, but not to the degree that women typically were in Jalo films. For instance, first and foremost, she's not killed. <laughs> she lives throughout the entire film. And then two, and most importantly, I guess, once again, in the context of Argento's films and a lot of Jalo films at large, she is not the killer. And this is important, not necessarily because making a female a killer is 
evil or or inherently misogynistic in and amongst itself, but um, women in Jalo films, or, or let me take that back, the killers in Jalo films were typically mentally unhealthy. There is sort of this weird obsession with uh, in Jalo films, as far as I can tell, with the killer being mentally unstable or um, him or her resorting to killing because they are crazy or psychotic. It's you know it, it's sort of a very undeveloped picture of what mental illness is really like. Oh well, this picture, this person was schizophrenic or had past trauma, so of course they turned into a rabid serial killer. Um, it's one of my biggest complaints, um, amongst many other complaints, with. Rob Zombie's attempt to reboot the Halloween franchise and giving Michael Myers a pass. and like, well, oh, he's just a little kid who was picked on. And of course, picked on kids all become mass serial killers. Uh, that's just a scientifically validated fact. But in Jalo, the, the, the women who are the killers are often like these slighted women or these women who are kind of like mentally unhealthy. Um, and once again, going back to uh, Mikhail J. Coven's um, notes... Uh, or in his book, once again, that book is, hang on, let me find it, La Dolce Morte, Vernacular Cinema, and the Italian Giallo Film. If you are so interested, I will also post a link to that on the Facebook page if you want to purchase it. It is a book. It is not easy. Well, I don't want to say it's not easy to get a hold on, but if you want to spend $45 on a book, by all means, uh, it will be there for you. Um, but he's um, kind of talking about... Uh, this this idea as well about why that how there's a there's a focus on sort of the 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 sick woman um and and this idea of of a killer being mentally ill and specifically why a woman would be a mentally ill serial killer um he, and he's he's taking notes on the, the significance of voyeurism and sexual objectivity uh reflecting an ambivalence um over the social upheaval that modernity uh, brought to Italian cinema in the 1960s, and this is what he says. The changes within Italian culture can be seen throughout the Giallo film as something to be discussed and debated. Issues pertaining to identity, sexuality, increasing levels of violence, women's control over their own bodies, history, the state, all abstract ideas which are all portrayed situationally as human stories in the Giallo film. Um, and so that's, that's a little... Um, what is that? What's that phrase called? Toss you a stick? No, I don't know. Anyway, that that's a little nugget morsel, I guess. For if you're someone like me who wants to look into something deeper in this film movement of where it comes from and what um, subconscious factors are making people make these kind of films, this idea of of sexuality, of this social upheaval, and kind of people trying to process, like, well, what does it mean for a woman to have? independence or control over her over her own body and, and and maybe even like like james hinted at with it with italy being so inherently such a catholic culture maybe the clashing of these ideas of a woman having control over her own body but then also well no we're still living in this patriarchy and so maybe there's this tension or even maybe bad blood or, or negative will towards a more progressive society um and the Cat on Nine Tales kind of, by its depiction of Anna and of women, sort of push back against that a little bit. And once again, I don't know if this is necessarily something that Argento intended. I don't, I, I'm not necessarily saying that The Cat on Nine Tales, once again, is necessarily the most progressive film in the world, especially considering these traits of the, the, the mentally ill 
woman serial killer seemed like it was the case in Crystal Plumage and in um, uh, Flies. But with this one, it's it sort of... There's something refreshing about here's a woman who actually kind of gives hell to our protagonist a little bit. And once again, is now I've called it up. His name is Carlo Giordani. He's played by Jam Franci James Franciscus. Um, once he accuses her of being the killer and is proven wrong, once again, in, in, a, in a fun little revealing twist, because it, the, this movie does do a good job of making you think. It made me think that she was the killer for a minute there. And then it's not. And then it's kind of like, it's all right, well, back to the drawing board. It wasn't him. Okay, it wasn't Dr. Braun, and it's not Anna, and it kind of keeps making you do this, and kind of there, there's this, this question and answer and re-questioning and re-answering um, kind of propels the movie forward. Um, and so when, when, when it's revealed that Anna's not the killer, she kind of jabs him at him a little bit, like, oh, I, I thought you were going to be different from everybody else. And that kind of makes him feel shameful, and which is good. He's a three-dimensional character. He's, he's not an asshole, like, I, like I've... As I've read that other characters in Argento uh, Jalo films necessarily are. Um, he, he's a guy that is noble but makes mistakes, as we all did make mistakes with this as well. Um, it's, it's really interesting to see that. Um, and we sort of need that momentum, this kind of whole thing of like, well, is he the killer? No. Okay, well then who is it? And, you know, you have these nine, you know, these nine clues, the, the titular, the cat o' nine tails, um, propelling us forward, which is very important because this film does drag a little bit. Um, I started feeling how long this movie was uh, right around the, the time that the character Gigi showed up. Gigi, who is apparently a past colleague of Carlo, um, has some type of history with nefarious criminal activities, theft, um, breaking and entering. I, I, I don't know. I, we, we, know. we never heard from this character before. We never hear from him again after this convenient sequence in which he they break into... Um, uh, Dr. Terzi's uh, home and, and discover the secret of, of, of Anna's relationship with him. Um, it, it's weird, and it kind of felt like, oh my god, like who is this guy and what are they doing? And I thought I had about 10, 20 minutes in the, in the film left and paused it and realized I actually had closer to 40 at that moment. I was like, all right, well, come on, we got to get going here. But aside from that, there really is these, this, this wonderful momentum this kind of film has, and that is that has to do with the plot and with this mystery element. And once again, this characteristic of the giallo archetype or not archetype but uh, you know you, you know what i'm saying um that, that is a, a testament to the kind of story that argento is telling and he's telling it very well um and now uh in and getting also getting back to this idea of identity um and identity in in being at the heart of the giallo genre, it is also interesting um, to, to kind of consider that um, Cassoni, who turns out to be the murderer, and really, in retrospect, it's sort of kind of obvious that Cassoni is the killer. I mean, it really can't be anyone else because basically all the named or important characters are either killed or ruled out. Um, but I should say that with a caveat that I'm not very good at predicting twists at all. <laughs> uh, I, I watch, This is a brief tangent here, but there's a, a series on Netflix called Dark, it's a German TV series that basically deals with, to put it very briefly, time travel in a small town. Um, it's a wonderful film I've wrote about in Crossing the Streams. You should definitely watch it if you can. Um, I was watching it with my girlfriend. I think there's about 10 episodes in the first season. And she had predicted about 60 to 75% of how it would end halfway through, whereas my predictions all turned out wretchedly wrong. 
Um, the only twist that I've been able to predict my entire movie-going experience is, I believe, the twist in The Prestige. Um, I was quite proud of myself for that one, and that was, what, 12 years ago? So I'm very bad with this. So Cassoni, in retrospect, it should have been obvious that he was a killer. It was not to me, and I found it satisfying and delightful that it turned out like that was him. But the, the core of his mania, of his malevolence, comes down to this idea of identity because of course what the lab is working on is understanding and I and I guess trying to cure but at least at the very least understanding or identifying the XYY chromosome um, which is according to the movie the kind of chromosome which seems to predict violent criminal behavior in people as they say it's very rare to find it but if you went into prisons most of the characters within prison who are capable, who are accused of violent crimes have this XYY chromosome. And the big twist or, or, or the, the inciting incident for him is that it's discovered by the first guy who is murdered, whose name is escaping me, but another one of the scientists discovers that Cassoni carries this XYY chromosome and was blackmailing him. So his response is to push him in front of a train. Um, so there is this idea of identity of, 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 who am I, what does it say about me, and what does it predict about the kind of person I'm going to be, and can that be changed? That's all subtext, of course. That's not something that the film is specifically or explicitly saying. That's all subtext that I'm sort of reading into. And of course, I can fully understand if you, um, whether you are user fiction isn't real or someone else, I can fully understand how you could say to me, like, I, I don't see that. That doesn't seem like that's there for me. And that's fine. But that's what I brought to it, and that's what it enabled me to enjoy this movie on a deeper level. Now, if all of that sounds like bullshit to you, and you don't want to read deeper into it, you're saying, Jim, this is jalo, this is superficial, you've said it yourself, there's nothing deeper to it. I still think that there are superficial surface-level elements. Once again, I'm saying superficial and surface, not in a... Con uh, not in a critical way, well, or not in a negative way. But there are these superficial elements which I think really make this film well made. And I'm thinking specifically about how Dario Argento uses his camera in this movie. Now, um, the lush visuals, the um, dramatic camera movements, whether it's a, a whip pan or uh, smash zoom or something like that, those are typifying of Jalo films. Um, but Argento uses them in such a way to kind of enhance this, this, this sense of voyeurism which which enhances to me a, a mood of paranoia and of tension um i was reminded recently uh because i just rewatched um halloween because uh, my girlfriend had never seen it we are going to watch it in preparation for the david gordon green halloween which is coming out um and i was reminded uh how carpenter uses the camera um how carpenter kind of will have movement with the camera, but then have it stop as the characters keep going, uh, whether they're walking farther away from the camera or whether the camera is moving with them. Uh, and, and, and there's a, a blurring of POVs when he does something like that, where you're not sure, is this the director doing this or is this Michael Myers? And I think that, that blurring of that line as to like what pov am i looking through right now am i am i looking through michael myers eyes or am i just 
observing these people objectively. Blurring that line really kind of leads to something unsettling and, 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 and kind of keeps you on edge, which is very important for a horror movie and very effective in that film. And I was, well, I guess I shouldn't say reminded of that because The Cat of Nine Tails came out years before Halloween. So I'm actually wondering how much Carpenter may have pulled from Argento. But Argento does this, especially the way that he sort of frames things um, and, and, and moves his camera. And it has that same idea of like, I'm not sure if I'm looking through the killer's point of view right now or if I'm just observing the scene objectively or if that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And there's even specific shots, um, um, with how he frames and stages a shot that makes you wonder like, wait, what is going on right now? I'm thinking of, of two shots in particular. The one, uh, one of them where... Um, our, our two protagonists, uh, Giordani and um, Arno, uh, played by Carl Malden. And I didn't know this, Carl Malden, one-time Oscar winner, uh, two-time Oscar nominee for um, On the Waterfront and... Um, well, I guess I should just click on his name and find out. On the Waterfront, and I'm sorry, I, sh I should probably be editing this out, um, but I'm not going to. Ah, Streetcar Named Desire, yes, so... Nominated for On the Waterfront, one for A Streetcar Named Desire. Um, our two protagonists are in the tomb <laughs> trying to um, get a, a clue which was literally buried with a body. And so they're breaking into the tomb and into the coffin to try and get this clue that is on this woman's necklace. And the, with the way that it's framed, Giordani is framed off to the, to the left as he's digging through the coffin. And Arno, Franco Arno, is off to the right, but he's, he's up higher in the frame interview because he's a few steps up outside and he's off to the right and you see him kind of like his hand kind of like an arm twitching and suddenly he disappears from the doorway from the frame and you're not sure what's going on and if you're not paying attention you miss it and if you weren't paying attention you missed it and then he's gone and all of a sudden the door slams shut and you're not really sure what happened um so your vision is is really focused in two different places and you kind of have to make a decision of what's going on and if you miss it, you're sort of like wait wait wait, wait I, I missed something um and then there's another shot where um, right before this aforementioned lady is killed, um, she's the wife of, of the, the scientist who was killed early on, um, so brutally with the train. She, I believe she goes into the bathroom, and then she comes out, and the camera just sort of, it's, it's very brief, but the camera for like an extra second maybe after she leaves is just still focused on uh, the bathtub, and specifically the shower curtain. And, of course, there the killer is behind there because then you, so, you sort of see some movement or hand or something, but it's not right away, and it's certainly not while she's in the frame. She leaves the frame first, and the camera just lingers on the shower curtain for an extra second or two before you see the movement. And it, it, was, and it was an effective shot for me because I just started thinking, you know, right as she leaves, like, why are we still here? Why is the camera still focused on this? Of course, there has to be something there, but it hasn't shown up yet. And, it, and there's that that little sense of anticipation, of dread, of building tension, and Argento is, is great with that in this, in this film. He really um, moves the camera, stages the camera, stages the actors and the shot, uh, 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 shot construction in such a way where there is this sense of what is going on and of tension and of mystery and what am I supposed to be looking at? And, and, it, and it, was, it was incredibly effective. Um, at least in, in regards to engaging me and making me wonder where is this going to go, what's going on. It was mystery. It was a thriller. It, it wasn't overly bloody or overly gory. Um, it wasn't super lush like Suspiria was or like I expected it to be. Um, and it, it, there wasn't much more to it than just sort of what was 
given to me. But what was given to me, if I engaged it, or once I engaged it on its own terms and watched it in retrospect and sort of realized what I was giving, I could appreciate it a, a little bit more. And so I think that, yeah, it, it might not be the greatest film uh, that are in, in Argento's career. He himself is not a fan of it. It's his least favorite of his movies. Um, and certainly it seems like the consensus for from fans and people who appreciate Argento, sort of this one is one of his lesser titles, but I think it was a great recommendation from James to kind of set the, the, the stage of, okay, this is what I should be expecting. This is sort of what these kind of films are. This is what you should expect from this entire movement, basically, so that once you get the groundwork, you can kind of see how Argento is the one that stands above the rest because of how he plays within these rules and how he takes them to another level. So that's not specifically directed towards you, David. That's just towards anyone. I understand maybe why there might be skepticism and I understand sort of why, you know, why it was given to me, even though it wasn't his most exemplary. I think it is one of his most typifying in regards to, once again, the context of Dara Argento as a giallo filmmaker. Because as James talked about in the introduction, introductory episode, Mario Bava did um, giallo, Lucio Fulti did giallo, Umberto Bava did giallo. A lot of filmmakers did it. And for good or for ill, giallo was a big influence on Eli Roth. Do with that information what you will. Um, a lot of people did it. But he kind of stuck around and stayed in it. That, that, that was the, the, the ring that he played in. This, this was his playpen, basically. So if I'm going to appreciate him and see kind of why he is head and shoulders above the rest, I have to first understand what Jalo is and understand the rules and how to engage with it on its terms so I can see what Dare Argento does with it. Um, uh, this is, as we as we noted in the introductory episode, it is free to stream uh, on Amazon Prime if you have a subscription for that. If you do not, it's easy enough to rent or purchase through iTunes, Vudu, uh, YouTube, and Google Play. Um, but certainly, Amazon Prime is the best way to go. If you have a Roku like I do, and you're you're using Amazon Prime that way. You may notice that if you go into the search bar or the search menu and do Cato Nine Tails, there are two options that come up. One is free and one is not. And the one that is not just says something like this title is not available at this time. I don't know what the difference between those two are. Because if you go into a web browser and search for the Cato Nine Tails, it will only give you this one. So I don't know what the difference is. There's a mystery there that not even our best Jalo filmmakers can solve, I suppose. But if you know the reason behind that, feel free to drop me a line because I am very curious about that as well. It's easy enough to drop me a line, of course, because you can just shoot me an email at youdomoviesbadly uh, at gmail.com. I certainly want to hear from you whether you agree, whether you disagree, whether you have notes, suggestions, anything else. You can follow me on Twitter at Nolan Fixes Teeth. You can catch up on back episodes of I Do Movies Badly at... Um, BattleshipRetention.com. Go to the podcast drop-down menu, find I Do Movies Badly. That's also where you can chime in in the comments field and let me know your thoughts. Um, you can also find my stuff on iTunes. Give me a rating there. Um, I don't really check that very often. I like to say that I will read ratings in episodes. I haven't done that in a long time, mostly because, one, I'm not sure if there are any there, because, two, I don't really check that very often. But please go there. Give me a five-star rating. If you think it's worthy of five stars, 
I'll also accept four stars. Hell, I'll accept anything if it's genuine. Um, and I do movies badly.podbean.com is where you can catch up on uh, everything I've done in the past as well. So those are my thoughts on the Cat of Nine Tales, uh, on the Jalo genre, subgenre at large. Um, thank you for listening. I do apologize if this was a little bit dry like my throat is because of how long I've been talking about this, but I've enjoyed it. Hopefully you have enjoyed it as well. Um, so thank you for listening to this. Please be sure to tune in next week where I'll be reviewing Phenomena and hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 